Well, once again, it's good to be with you this morning. I saw a lot of new faces, as I said, in the atrium. Uh, you came on the Sunday when uh, the executive pastor decided to preach about Satan. So I just want you to know that's not what we talk about every Sunday, okay, in case I freak you out. But I hope to encourage you this morning. It's good, good to be together. Uh, our teaching text this morning comes from uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, and it reads this. Jesus entered a house. A crowd gathered again so that it was impossible for him and his followers even to eat. Then his family heard what was happening, so they came to take control of him. They were saying, he's out of his mind. The legal experts came down from Jerusalem. Over and over they charged, he is possessed by Beelzebul another name for Satan in the ancient Palestinian culture. He throws out demons with the authority of the ruler of demons. When Jesus called them together, he spoke to them in a parable. How can Satan throw Satan out? A kingdom involved in civil war will collapse, and a house torn apart by divisions will collapse. If Satan rebels against himself and is divided, then he can't endure He's done for. You see, no one gets into the house of a strong man and steals anything without first tying up the strong person. Only then can the house be burglarized, a great word. I assure you that, no, that human beings will be forgiven for everything, for all sins and insults of every kind. But whoever insults the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That person is guilty of a sin with consequence that lasts forever. And he said this because the legal experts were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. His mother and brothers arrived. They stood outside and sent word to him, calling for him. Jesus, you're freaking everyone out. A crowd was seated around him, and those sent to him said, Look, your mother, brothers, and sisters are outside looking for you. And he replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Looking around at those seated around him in a circle, he said, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a great show that's swept through my generation. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called Stranger Things. And the basic premise of Stranger Things, it's a bunch of kids who spend their evenings gathered around the table playing Dungeons and Dragons, letting their fantasies run wild, battling all sorts of monsters. And yet one night, when one of them is on his way home, Will, it happens that one of those monsters, the Demogorgon, is actually real and alive. And Will, on his way home, gets caught up in this alternate dimension, a dark, evil place called the Upside Down, and is there in need of rescue. And as the series unfolds over the multiple seasons, the plot thickens more and more as life in the scene realm in the dainty little town of Hawkins, becomes more and more and more affected by a realm that goes unseen. In many ways, approaching the Bible as a modern person, a modern Western person, feels like someone is asking us to believe that Stranger Things is actually nonfiction. When we come to the Gospels, we find that Jesus is not just walking around, helping people, starting food pantries, posting encouraging things on Instagram, as good as all of those things are or can be, 
But we find, especially in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is healing, but more so in Mark, Jesus shows up as an exorcist. Someone convinced that there is an oppressive, unseen realm that forces itself upon humanity to pull them away from the goodness of God and life itself. And Jesus states here and elsewhere that his mission, why he has come, is to preach the kingdom of God, to express that through the power of God in order to overcome this kingdom of darkness. Jesus comes with an unusual liberation. I remember sharing about the kingdom of God in this way in Germany with some friends who really didn't grow up with any kind of spiritual worldview, very material in their thinking. And I remember talking about this. We had it in a little booklet. And I remember them beginning to laugh, saying like, this sounds like something out of a page of Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. What is Jesus going to do next? Come riding on a white horse with a sword? Let's just say I did not turn to Revelation. Receiving the words of Jesus here that his mission is to come and free people from the grip of a reign of evil by Satan and demons is difficult for many of us modern people to accept. The great but controversial New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann put it this way about believing in these things in the modern era. We cannot use electrical lights and radios and in the event of illness avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. What I want to explore with you this morning and where I think Mark 3 confronts us is that many of us do not live as if there is an actual unseen realm a spiritual realm, another dimension that impacts, shapes, and dictates the one in which we live. We tend to prefer material ways of exploring and living in our world. Life is just what can be seen, experienced. Life is what you make of it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Your decisions determine everything. Many of us might even say we are spiritual people. We pray for people. Yeah, we believe there's a Satan and demons. But if we actually took stock of our prayers we would see that our spirituality is one more of deism than the one that Jesus describes here. Deism, if you don't know what that is, is essentially a, a philosophical framework where there is a God who created everything. He wound the clock up. He kind of ran away, and he's distant but providential. He still will intervene and kind of jump in when we need him to. We hope that this God will hear our requests. But that is a very different narrative than what Mark 3 gives us. Where Jesus is being accused of being an agent of Satan only to make the point that his mission is to resist a real kingdom of darkness that really is set against God. That Jesus is not some rebellious angel or some teacher trying to draw attention to himself. He is an agent of God's kingdom come to invade a house, a kingdom, political words in the ancient word, were, uh, in the ancient world, used by Rome to define itself, but now here attributed to Satan and darkness and evil itself. That Jesus has come to bind up the strong man and liberate those oppressed by the devil. Prayer, spirituality, the Christian life looks a lot different when the narrative undergirding it is a cosmic conflict. Jesus makes clear again and again throughout all of Mark that this is his primary battle 
To use the words of the baptismal confession from the Church of England, he is in a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. When Jesus comes on the scene in Mark 1, his first act of power, uh, his first miracle, is to cast out a demon, to cast out an unclean spirit. In Mark 1, Jesus comes to the synagogue to teach, and there in the place where Jews are surrounded by the Torah, they're there to learn, they're there to worship, in that place, Jesus walks in, and the first things he finds is an unclean spirit, as if he's as if the presence of Jesus is pulling evil itself out of hiding to be dealt with by him. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus crosses the sea with the disciples and he quiets the storm and the disciples are freaking out. And that story ends in chapter 4 by them saying, who is this guy? And then Mark places, right at the beginning of chapter 5, a story of Jesus going into Gentile, non-Jewish land to liberate a man controlled by a host of demons called Legion. And he does that, a quick little detour, quick little exorcism, and then heads back. Can we stomach this part of the gospel? My argument would be this, is that I think we need to. I think we need to accept the fact, or accept the reality, that part and parcel of the gospel is to accept, to believe in, that the world is more than we can see. That evil is not a vague concept or a human construct. That evil is an actual, real force present in the world. And that actually the worldview of the Bible, as silly as it might seem to some of you, I would argue has a better way of explaining our human experience than materialism or deism. It's not helpful enough to believe everything lies in our deciding power when we look at the evil and brokenness of the world. There's a great book about kind of the journey through these things as someone in the modern West by a psychologist named Richard Beck called Reviving Old Scratch, an old nickname in the South for Satan. And he details his journey. He was a fundamentalist. He grew up in a Christian fundamentalist church where everything is the devil. Your Bible falls off the table. It's the devil. You cook something wrong. It's the devil. And he worked his way out of... That is not what I'm teaching this morning, by the way, okay? <laughs> and he ended up kind of leaving that behind and becoming agnostic and leaving the faith totally. And then like many people in the modern West, many people today, he kind of re-entered through what he would call progressive Christianity. And progressive Christianity, I don't have the time to totally explain it, and it means different things depending on who you are, but progressive Christianity is really focused on this social justice aspect of what Jesus came to do, which is incredibly important. That the kingdom of God is not just all these spiritual things and liturgy, but Jesus came to do justice, to lift up those who are hurting, to rework how we do economics, politics, that Jesus is Lord means something for our real life together. But that, that progressive Christianity that he became involved in heavily focused on social justice and people and frankly a bit materialistic, not really paying attention to the teaching of Jesus on these things, drove him to end up ministering to men in prison. And he began to minister there to do what you do as a progressive Christian, and that is be in solidarity with the poor and oppressed, to see their conditions bettered, all things that we should affirm and be a part of. But when he was in prison talking to them, he began to realize that for all of them, 
The way they told their story was impossible without talking about Satan. That the very people he was compelled to be in solidarity with, based upon his Christian worldview that often screens Satan and demons out, were the very people saying, we got here, we struggled with addiction, we ruined our lives, we hurt things, we're struggling even now, because it feels like there's something outside of us that doesn't want us to move forward. There's something that keeps pulling us back. There's something even outside of the brokenness within, without these voices, these things that say, no, 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 God doesn't love you. God's not powerful. God can't save you. And so he found himself in this kind of second naivete where he said, actually, to just do social justice, to just try and make things better in our own strength ignores something really, really clear about human life that no matter how many bombs we drop, another war crops up. No matter how many elections we have, we still find ourselves in trouble. No matter how many food pantries we open, there's still people who are hungry. He said you can't explain that with just material causes. There's something outside, something charged, something that needs to be deconstructed and broken apart that we have to be liberated from. In my own pastoral experience, ministering to people who lived under bridges, lived homeless, lived with addiction, this is the same kind of experience I had as someone who wrestles with these intellectual questions. We were pastoring uh, one specific individual, his name's Kurt, and Kurt had lived under the bridge in our city for seven years before he wound up at church the very kind of person that in that part of me that really believes the church is called to justice and social justice that I need to be in solidarity with. And yet the narrative that he told me of why he did not seek help sooner, why did he not come to church even when he wanted to have faith in God, was that he had a sense that dark in the night under the bridge there was something holding him back, lying to him, telling him it will never get better. Fleming Rutledge, in her fantastic book about the crucifixion, quotes from the memoir of Romeo Dallier, the French-Canadian general who was in charge of the UN forces during the Rwandan genocide. And Romeo writes this, After one of my many presentations following my return from Rwanda, a Canadian forces padre asked me, after all I had seen and experienced, how could I still believe in God? I answered that I know there is a God because in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him, I've smelled him, and I've touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore I know there is a God. If you've really dove into the brokenness of the world, you might find the deeper that you get, you actually need that belief in God because you have to believe there is someone who can overcome the evil that surrounds us. Beyond our sin and guilt, our emotional brokenness, our physical impairment, all ways that we need healing, and not all of those connected to Satan and demons or any of that, there is something outside of us, outside of you, that wants to keep you away from God. And a lack of attention to that will cause you to be stunted in your growth in Christian life. Now, none of this should be as clear-cut as we typically put it. 
for those who often use the word biblical, they sound a lot more clear than the Bible itself about this topic. It's actually quite foggy. Going through the Old Testament, you rarely see the person of Satan. He's this mysterious figure. Never in the Old Testament is the serpent named as Satan, by the way. That's a New Testament move. Satan in Hebrew, hasatan, simply means accuser. And in Job, he shows up as someone who's kind of on God's side, kind of works for God, a prosecutor, a lawyer of sorts. But as we move in history and in the development of Judaism more and more to the time of Jesus, this sense that there are these powers attacking the people of God, oppressing humanity, gets stronger and stronger and stronger. We see in texts like Daniel 7 that the empires of the world that are oppressing God's people are now portrayed as these beasts, these things charged with the power outside of themselves. We get to the odd text, First Enoch, likely scripture to some Jews before the time of Jesus, still scripture in some parts of the church today. And the key issue is not human guilt or sin. It is that there is real forces of darkness oppressing humanity and holding them back from God. This language, which is mysterious and foggy as we trace it through the Old Testament and Jewish texts of the time of Jesus, explodes in the New Testament. As if the presence of Jesus, the gospel itself, draws evil out of hiding. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see he is tempted by the devil, who from the early time tries to mislead Jesus, corrupt him, disfigure his identity so he will not obey his father. In Hebrews, we read that Jesus has come to do what? To take the devil's power, which is the fear of death. In Paul, we don't get as much the language of Satan, but we hear about these twin powers in Romans 5, sin and death, where sin is not just something you do, it's not just a verb for human subjects, but sin itself becomes the subject of verbs, enslaving us, holding us down, keeping us away from God. In Ephesians 1 and 2, we get the language of the powers, human systems and structures and rulers who have been corrupted by forces of darkness and bring oppression on the people of God. In Revelation, the revelator, John from Patmos, uses imagery that would have reminded the reader of Rome, but identifies that there is a dark, beastly power behind the persecution they get from Rome. In Mark chapter 3, we see the same thing. Satan has a basileia, a kingdom, an okio, a house, both words used to describe empire, but what Jesus is concerned with is that dark power that sits behind them. Here's the point. What Scripture imagines, and this is really important for how we grasp the gospel, is that the gospel is not just a two-actor drama, God and us. In a two-actor drama, it either needs to be all our fault, we're just terrible, dirty sinners, or it needs to be all God that is the problem. God's angry and wrathful, and we need to deal with God as our problem. What I would argue when you read the New Testament is that the gospel is actually a three-actor drama. That yes, we are sinners. We are broken by sin. We are complicit in this rebellion. But before we are sinners, we are oppressed. We are tempted. We are pulled away. And we need to be liberated from that. And God is not our problem. He's our rescuer. Come to liberate us and to free us. 
We live in a story not just about salvation and acceptance, but about liberation, being freed from something that is holding us down. Now, what I'm not saying is that the devil is responsible for everything. I think that is a really unhelpful way to think. C.S. Lewis said it this way, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, but the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We need to be balanced in how we approach this, but we do need to understand in our prayer life, in our intellect, in how we read the news cycle, that evil is not just a vague human concept to try and describe things that hurt, but that there is a force set against God and you that does not want you to love Jesus, that does not want you to find freedom, that does not want you to receive love in your life. And that's why those things are so dang hard sometimes. What if sometimes the Christian life or the mission of the church is stalled because we don't attend to these kinds of ways that we need to pray? We would rather ignore the reality of evil and not intercede and think that if we just do X, Y, and Z, it will all work itself out. That doesn't fit anything that Jesus taught. Because Jesus lives in a world, and I think maybe we should trust Jesus with his cosmology, that there is something more to reality than what we can see, touch, taste, and feel. And this is why his mission is one of liberation, spiritual liberation, not in the term of do something on Sunday for an hour and forget Jesus for the rest of the week, but spiritual, to free the inner man and woman in us so we can live a liberated life in Christ. Mark 3 is likely echoing uh, the text in Isaiah 49, where Yahweh speaks to his people in exile who are trapped in Babylon, and he says, I'm going to come and free you from the strong man from the rulers, the people who hold you down. And Mark has taken that language, and like we see in Revelation, like we see in the whole texture of Mark 3, he takes that language attributed, or attributed to Babylon and to those rulers and says it is actually Satan who is the strong man who we need liberation from. And that can only happen in the power of God. We can't break out from this like our own. Like the Hebrews under Pharaoh, we are people who need to be freed by someone coming from the outside. To conclude, let me give you a question and an answer and a picture. How does this kingdom of darkness work? And I'm not going to pretend to be an expert about this. But I want to think about how does this kingdom of darkness work? How does it actually exert oppression in our life? And how do we contend against it? Now, I don't think the best way to think about this is to just play a clip from The Exorcist or something like that, spinning heads, green pew, things like that. That, I don't think, is the primary way that this goes down. When Jesus talks about Satan in the Gospel of John, he names him as what? The father of lies. If you look through history, evil regimes, where evil has really, really reached a full point on a governmental level, often have a propaganda machine that was very, very important for them getting that power. You see, ideology and ideas, in the words of Dallas Willard, can become the stronghold of evil in our life. 
It's almost like Stranger Things knows about this. I don't know where they're getting their information from. But in the most recent season, the primary enemy is named Vecna, and he can control people's minds and bring about death in their life, but the only way he can do it is by entering lies that they believe about themselves. The access point for that evil to enter their life, to break things apart, is guilt, insecurity, undealt with things of the heart that open them up to a power. You see, identity often seems to be a key question in every exorcism, every exorcism seen in Mark. When we get into Mark 1, the unclean spirit sees Jesus and tries to name who Jesus is, which in the ancient world, when you named something, it was like an act of authority over it. And so this unclean spirit tries to name who Jesus is. Part of why Jesus tells spirits to be quiet. Stop trying to name me. Stop trying to exert authority over me. But identity is right there in the heart of it. In Mark chapter 3, we have all sorts of questions of identity. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Who is the family of Jesus? In Mark 5, once again, the disciples cry out, Who is this guy? And they get this story. Identity is right at the heart of it. And then Jesus asking the man in Mark 5, what's your name? And he says, legion, that this unclean spirit has been given room to name him, to tell him who he is. And that leads to physical, mental, relational, familial brokenness. When we go all the way back to Genesis 3, we see that the serpent whom the New Testament identifies as this dark power, goes to work on Adam and Eve by disfiguring the identity of God, doubting his character, and disfiguring the identity that God intended to give them. You see, the way that the kingdom of darkness holds us within our sin and guilt and shame is by whispering lies to us about God, ourselves, and others. Prayer won't work. Why are you praying? God doesn't listen to you. You think God wants to talk to you? You think, you think God wants to answer your prayer? Really? He's far away. He probably doesn't even exist. He loves you. He just doesn't really like you. Some of you believe that. And it's really damaging. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not accepted. My life will never change. I'm not beautiful. It's always going to be this way. Those people over there, they're the problem. Get rid of them. Get them out of our country. Things will figure themselves out. It's their fault. I'm going to say something that might get me in trouble, but that's okay. You can just email mwalker at nampaccn. <laughs> Other people are not our enemy. I've been moved by this this morning, and I think, I think it's the heart of Jesus. The especially this year. I'm sometimes sickened by the vitriol that I returned home to in this country. You know, if you trust any level of my spiritual discernment, 
I don't think the powers care as much who you vote for this year. Those are important things to figure out, don't get me wrong. I think that they really care that you hate the other side. And the church's vitriol and division over these things is akin to Jesus finding a demon in the synagogue. Don't submit to the power of darkness this year. Vote, think, wrestle through the issues. But don't buy into the lie that our battle is against flesh and blood. Maybe in a two-actor drama that's the case. We can divide world between who's in and who's out, but in the eyes of the Jesus who comes to liberate us, they are fellow prisoners who need the power of God in their life. When we believe these things, we allow ourselves to be reigned over. And there is so much, I'm not talking about bad doctrine, and some of us have it. I'm talking about heart-level lies that dictate how we live in the world. I was at the women's shelter this Monday and shared a similar shorter version of the sermon with our community on mission and just asked if any woman had lies they were believing in to stand up and receive ministry. Eight women. I got abused when I was a teenager and I just haven't felt worthy for a long time. I just don't think I'm beautiful. I don't think God loves me. And at the heart of their life, I'm not saying that causes everything or Satan has created all of these circumstances, but that lie can grip someone and hold them back from receiving how Jesus wants to transform things. But the goodness is, is that the liberation that we receive is the victory of Jesus upon the cross. Listen to this in, second, or in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead because of the things you had done wrong and because your body wasn't circumcised, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things that you had done. He destroyed the record of debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us, and he canceled it by nailing it onto the cross. And in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, the powers, because he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal procession. You see, on the cross, Jesus takes the accusation, he takes these lies, he takes these powers into his own body and extinguishes them so that the accuser can no longer look at those in Christ and have any accusation. Because every ground for the accusation that you might be giving a foothold into your life has been dealt with on the cross of Christ and you are liberated from it. Present tense. Jesus reveals a God on the cross who loves you. God adores you. He, you wake up in the morning, he wants to be with you. Amen. It's a love affair. He likes you. He likes you. He likes your quirks. He likes the things we don't like. <laughs> he likes the things that sometimes we don't like about ourselves. He is scandalously loving and enjoys us. He didn't need us. He made us because he enjoys us. He hasn't come to save us because he needs us. It's because he wants to enjoy us forever. 
Jesus births for us on the cross a new identity. You are not your shame. He's entered into your shame, those things that have happened to you that you did not cause, and he has entered into solidarity with you so that if you are to accuse yourself on the basis of shame, you have to accuse Christ himself. And he's entered into your sin, and he's dealt with your guilt, and he's taken everything into himself that might pull you away from God so that when you look in the mirror in the morning, you are not your sin or your guilt or your mistakes. Sure, you need to repent and change and grow in his power, but you are no longer those things. And any voice that says different to the people of God is the accuser who does not have anything left to accuse with. It's all foggy. It's all vapor. That when it's blown away by the Spirit of God, you realize there's no power left. And our battle is not against flesh and blood. Church, you need to get this into your DNA. Our witness in our time and place depends on it. But it's against the rulers and authorities and powers, those dark forces that sit behind the things that we think are the issue. And like Jesus says, those only come out with prayer. When the people of God intercede and witness and proclaim the gospel, we are a liberated people in the midst of a world that still needs to know the liberation that has already occurred for them. And finally, a picture. If you study the history of Nazi Germany, you will know that the rise in their power had a lot to do with propaganda and disinformation. Fake news. Things that were just blatantly untrue that got into the minds of people. And one of the beautiful things we don't often know about this in the U.S., there was a group organized around the University of Munich, kind of the heart of where Nazi Germany was birthed out of, called the White Rose, who at great risk to themselves, teenagers, young 20s, created leaflets that through a network they would spread out through cities and send into the mail that challenged all of the propaganda, that challenged all of the lies, and spoke the truth about what was actually going on and in 1943, the leader of that, a 21-year-old girl named Sophie Scholl, was beheaded for treason. The enemy is running a disinformation campaign. And our calling as Christians is, one, to get our facts straight about ourselves. We are a forgiven, rescued, liberated people. But then like the White Rose, our vocation is to initiate an information campaign. There are so many people, and I'm not talking about bad doctrine, there are so many people who do not yet know that Christ loves them, who have no sense of the worth that God wants to offer them. And they might be finding it, but they're finding it often in something that won't hold up in crisis. And there are so many people who think that other people are the issue, which is demonic. And we are those people called in word and deed to participate in a great information campaign. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. What lies are you believing this morning? Where has the enemy tried to 
wrestle into your life and dictate your identity. You know, the good news of this, and I really want to say this, and this is not a disregard for sin and brokenness and human culpability before God that we need our guilt dealt with. It's not all your fault. It's really important to know that. There is something that is resisting even us gathering in this place. And I don't want to overestimate that or underestimate that. But 2,000 years ago, you got liberated from that lie. And that liberation is as good today as it was then, and it will stretch itself into eternity when we will forget this whole conflict. And we will only remember it through those nail-scarred hands of the one who saved us. As we worship, as you are always welcome, come to the altar and receive prayer. If you need prayer this morning, if you need just a prayer for the truth of God's love to break in and unveil your eyes to the truth of what we have in Christ, come and pray. We're in the season of epiphany. That word, phanero, comes from unveiling, the making visible. And what Jesus comes to do is make visible what we have on offer from God, which is an unusual but a very, very, very good liberation. Let's worship together. I invite you to stand and sing. These altars are open if you need prayer.
sense Jesus ministering to us that we honor him and that we thank him. So we love you, Jesus. That Anglican baptismal confession says this in the liturgy, receive the sign of the cross as a token of your new life in Christ, in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful soldier, soldier and the servant to the end of your days. We are baptized into a conflict, not against flesh and blood, and not with the tools of war that our world uses, but with that cross-shaped love and power that we see in Jesus. When I look at my life, when I look back at my life, when I hopefully become an old man, I wanna be able to say in the grace and power of Jesus, I took ground for the kingdom of God. 
I want the church to be able to say we took ground in this conflict for the glory of God. And so this benediction is for us. God Almighty, we know that you are the creator and the savior, the one who looks upon us with eyes of love, driven by that love to even come and be amongst us and to liberate us by the cross. Let us not forego our liberation and the truth of the matter that even in a world where we are surrounded by lies and brokenness and war and hurt, we are in conflict with a wounded, broken enemy who will not get the last word. And so liberate us this morning, Jesus, so that we can be agents of your liberation in this world. You do this in your power, Lord Jesus. Amen. Go in his peace.